I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Folks, tonight's classic episode is about one of the biggest musical acts in human history. No, we're not talking about Wham. No, we're not talking about Gregorian chant. We're talking about the Beatles, but not the bug. Read it. It's a, it's a pun. It's like beat Les. I know that, that escaped me for a long time, guys. Um, turns out there would be no wham or Gregorian chant or dancing or magazines if it weren't for the Beatles. Uh, those things are entirely true, but they did have a huge influence on music and pop culture and film. I mean, you name it. Uh, they really caught the imagination of, of America uh, in the form of the British invasion. Yeah, the B.O.'s. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I really like this band or this topic, maybe. No, it's the band. I, th- I think I really like the band. And uh, it's cool to know that there's there are so many conspiracies surrounding them. It's like they live in a conspiracy cloud. And with that, we're off to the races. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. Uh, You know by hearing my voice first that our compatriot and beloved friend Matt is not here. Matt, it's true, is on a top-secret adventure, which we cannot uh, disclose details about at this point. However, uh, he will return, and as far as we know, he is safe and sound, so stay tuned for the return of Matt Frederick. Yeah, we had to sign some ironclad NDAs about this whole affair. 
I didn't sign it. But they call me Ben. We are joined, of course, with our super producer, Paul Deccan. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know with an episode that's been a long time in coming. And I'm, I'm a little sad Matt's not here. I am super sad. But I will say something I'm not sad about is that I have the perfect nickname for Paul for this episode. It's Paul the Walrus Deccan. I'll take it. Yeah. Oh, come on, dude. That's perfect. I, I, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll go with it. Because Paul was the I, uh, let's see, Paul was the walrus in the Beatles, and who was the Eggman? Well, in the in the Magical Mystery Tour film, I believe John was the Eggman, mm-hmm. but the walrus was Paul. Is a lyric from uh, a song off the White Album called "Glass Onion," and that's another reference to the uh, ubiquitous. Probably most well-known Beatles conspiracy theory that there is that Paul McCartney died before his time and is now living life as as a, as a double, some sort of doppel that was hired to replace him. But we will get into that later. Which I appreciate the foreshadowing there, Noel, because that is one of the reasons that I wish Matt were here today. Way back in the early days of stuff they don't want you to know, we did a video <laughs> – wherein uh, we portrayed uh, my my trusty longtime friend Matt Frederick as a Beatles conspiracy theorist obsessed with the Paul McCartney concept. But let's take a step back and start with uh, the introduction and some facts. Clearly, clearly you've heard of the Beatles. We don't make too many assumptions on this show. But if you are listening now and you're thinking this is a show about insects that we have given names to. And misspelled in the title. Right. And misspelled in the title. We we promise you there is a method to the madness. The Beatles, you see, B-E-A-T-L-E-S, are one of, if not the most famous bands in human history. Not in modern history, not in recent history alone, all of it, human history. And hey, no ding on you, anyone out there, if you never noticed until this moment that Beatles is spelled funny, because we actually just had a conversation in the break room with Paul the Walrus and... And uh, he mentioned that he had only just noticed the fact that it was spelled B-E-A-T-L-E-S as opposed to the traditional spelling of the insect, B-E-E-T-L-E-S. Well, not just noticed. He said in college. Well, that's, you know, hey, man, we're, we're <laughs> but a speck, right. you know, in the, in the grand scheme, scheme of things. So college of these, yeah. was like last week. So let's put some numbers behind that claim of being the most famous band in human history. According to UK newspaper Note the Guardian, the Beatles have sold uh, over 178 million units or albums. That's not counting the over 1.6 billion singles they've sold, closer to 2 billion now. And that's not counting the innumerable movies, documentaries, covers, tributes, action figures, branded toys, the hobo teeth, other merchandise, board games, and so on associated with the band. I'm sorry, the what? Uh, board games and so on associated with the band. Uh, of course, yes. yes. They were definitely merch-rich, those Beatles. Um, and I bet you, you know what else about it doesn't include? What's that? Streams, because they only just p- pretty recently, mm-hmm. I mean, not college recently, no, more recently than college. Just like uh, a few years back, right? A few years back got added to Spotify, and that was a really big deal because, they, you know, because the Apple Records and Parlophone and whatnot mm-hmm. retained all the rights to that stuff. 
with an iron fist. It was not on any streaming services until they obviously struck up some kind of pretty lucrative deal with Spotify. Yeah, it was a huge deal with Apple Music a few years earlier, right? It That's made the right. News. That's right, Ben. And it was certainly part of a big old ad push. Um, oh, you yeah. know, hey, the Beatles are on streaming. So I'd be interested to see because now streaming numbers do factor into units moved in some odd kind of uh, formulation. Some arcane. It's a yeah, little weird. Ar- some arcane incantation for measuring success. And also, for any hardcore Beatles fans in the audience today, we do have to point out that it can be surprisingly difficult to get reliable, up-to-date statistics for a lot of numbers. You will see other claims that say, no, the Eagles of all bands are the most uh, most lucrative or popular best-selling band. But you know what, though? Mm-hmm. The Eagles suck. You're you're one of those, huh? Yeah. yeah. I'm a bit of a Lebowski. You know what? No. I'm just being a curmudgeon. The <laughs> Eagles do not suck. I will tell you, though, this is apropos of sure. something. Sure. I went through with a friend of mine. I, I said something like, what do the Eagles have, like five hits? The guy's like, no, dude, it's like 20. Mm. And it is almost exactly 20 giant, yeah. giant hits that the Eagles had. So whether you dig their music or not, they were highly uh, influential, at least in terms of the mainstream. I think it's the ubiquity of the Eagles that turns a lot of people off because, you know, they're they're famous in elevators across the planet. You will hear some sort of version of – I'll tell you what, uh, nothing is – quite the same level of depressing as being alone in a grocery store at 3 a.m. and hearing an instrumental Muzak version of Desperado playing while you're walking by the frozen food aisle. I will say I really do like the Los Lobos version of Hotel California that's on the Big Lebowski soundtrack. Yeah. I mean, the covers are great. Uh, But you could say, I don't know, you could say the same thing about the Beatles. There are so many uh, Beatles covers that have been done through so many iterations that they're eventually just becoming this sort of musical canon that everybody knows how to play a variation of. I mean, it's no surprise then that even in 2018 with, spoiler alert, half of the Beatles dead, fans and fringe theorists alike insist that the world has yet to hear the true story of what uh, what are also known as the Fab Four. That's fab short for fabulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, this whole crazy tale of the Beatles begins way back in the mid-50s with a kid who was kind of a, a popular cool guy, a hothead. Yeah, <laughs> and he was really down with this whole skiffle scene. You know what the skiffle scene yeah, is? the skiffle craze. Yeah, give, it, give it to me. I, I always have a hard time uh, remembering how, how one would – because I think it's sort of a folk thing. We've talked about it before. Sure. Um, skiffle – yeah, it's sort of like a blues-based folk yeah. hybrid that yeah. sort of takes American um, traditional music and turned it a little bit into more of a, I don't know, a rock and roll kind of jug band kind it's of thing. It's a pastiche of uh, folk music, American music that was popular at the times. And John Lennon and co. were particularly enamored of American prison songs from the South. So when John Lennon took some of his buddies and formed a group called the Quarrymen, they would play these prison songs from the American South during what was known as the skiffle craze. Lennon was around 17 at this time, but he already knew another kid who was a couple years younger than him who really wanted to be cool, a little bit more of a straight-laced kid with stricter parents. He was 15 years old. His name was Paul McCartney, and cool guy John Lennon 
came to Paul and said, hey, do you want to play music with me, even though you're only 15? So soon they began composing songs and playing music together. Well, fast forward, you can hear entire volumes of this story. It's a tale as old as time at And this I think point. most Beatles fans have some inkling of the, the Hamburg days and like mm-hmm. these, you know, the young lads from Liverpool mm-hmm. kind of like getting together and forming themselves a rock and roll band. Um, so then the next thing that happened was in February of 1958, Paul invited uh, a buddy of his, or a guy from around town, George Harrison, just to come and check out the band. Um, and then he actually auditioned. And Lennon, who, you know, the hothead bad boy of the crew, who probably, um, you know, was a bit of the ringleader, it seems like, sure. wasn't so sure about George because he was a little too young, um, even though he was only the same age as, as Paul. But uh, George could shred. Yeah, so the first audition that Harrison had, uh, Lennon says, Lennon says, well, he's it's too, he's too young. He's pretty good, but he's too young. So George comes back, young George comes back a second time. And according to the story, he played a lead guitar part from a song they all knew on the top level of a double-decker bus. And John Lennon essentially went, okay, yeah, fine, forget it. He's 15. He's 15. He's also our lead guitarist. Yep, yep. And then eventually other members of the the quarryman set left. So they were in a weird situation. It was just John, Paul, and George, and they were playing guitar pretty much when they could find a drummer. And they said, we need need some more people. And uh, that's when they started picking up some names that are going to be familiar to uh, more hardcore Beatles fans, but maybe not familiar to people who only know the Fab Four. Yeah, they picked up a guy named Stu or Stuart Sutcliffe who played a little bass. Uh, you know, you always think of Paul as playing the bass. So what, what, was, what was Paul playing if Stu was sitting on the bass? Were they three guitars strong plus bass? I believe so. Wow. So Yeah. Wild. And uh, at the time, he, here's Stuart's big contribution to the band. He is the one who suggested changing the group's name to the Beatles or the Beatles. And you'll hear a couple of different spellings. And he said this as a tribute to Buddy Holly and the Crickets, a group that both John Lennon and Paul McCartney had idolized for some time. And clearly Stu felt the same. Over the 1960s, their name would change a few more times. First to the Silver Beatles. Always retaining that B-E-A-T spelling, though, which is important because that's sort of like the little bit of a play on words. It's gold, Jerry. Gold. It's gold. And I wonder, too, if it was a reference to there was a, a zine, I guess, for lack of a better mm-hmm. term, called Mercy Beat mm-hmm. that one of John Lennon's uh, high school buddies started. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's Mercy M-E-R-S-Y-B-E-A-T. And that was actually the publication that kind of covered a lot of the early Beatles exploits in that uh, that skiffle movement or whatever. Yeah, could be. You know, a lot of times, well, at least Stuart Sutcliffe himself will attribute that inspiration for the name to himself. It It's probably true in some way, but also, you know, people are fond of that kind of attribution. They, while they were going through this name change, they said, okay, look, we we just need a drummer. And so they hired a guy named Pete Best. And for a time, they were playing as a five-piece band. Their first British performance as the Beatles happens in, on December 17th, 1960, at a place called the Kasbah Coffee Club in Liverpool. Kasbah is in Rock and Thee. And while they were recording 
for the first time in the studio in August of 1962 during their first uh, first session together. Uh, Pete Best was apparently just not cutting the mustard, and they got their manager to let go of Pete Best. Well, that was right after, I think it was even the manager, um, George Martin, who said the drummer's got to go. They all, I, I, they heard, all agreed. I've heard that. one story where that was definitely a thing, but apparently they had a problem with his haircut because he <laughs> uh, had kind of much more of the uh, traditional kind of greaser pompadour haircut, whereas uh, by this point the dudes were were rocking that um, British mod mop top that we, we know and love sure. so well that became the hallmark of their look. And it, it just goes to show that even early on in their career, they were very conscious of this image. You know? Yeah, and uh, their manager had famously told them that if they wanted to be big, it's like, look, you have to do better image-wise. You can't – because they were just showing up uh, and smoking or eating and drinking on stage and wearing whatever they had been wearing that day. And it's like you need to get some proper trousers. There's some great quotes about it, especially because I guess that's back when people said trousers more often. So, And it's crazy because this is George Martin's career before he wrote those awesome Game of Thrones books. You know, who knew he actually had a storied career as a record producer and manager. Yeah, and he was really just doing the Beatles, I think, to support his love of writing. And his love of Frappuccinos. He's pretty He's pretty candid about that. Yeah, they – so they got rid of Pete Best and that's when Ringo Starr comes into the picture. Also, Stuart Sutcliffe had earlier left of his own accord to pursue a career in art. That had to be a real kick in the pants later for the guy, you know. You're familiar with a lot of the discography in October 1962. Their first single as the Beatles comes out. It's called Love Me Do, D-O. It enters the British charts, reaches number 17. Pretty good for a first time out. Yeah, and this is like their earliest, earliest days in, in sound, which is much more akin to like the Phil Spector kind of traditional yeah, rock and roll. Yeah. I mean, really just kind of a lot more straightforward, but very catchy melodies um, that they would continue to incorporate mm-hmm. into their future stuff. But it, it obviously got a little weirder and cooler, in my opinion. Thankfully, yeah, because this is a little bit poppy boy bandy stuff, you know, uh, simple kind of three chord Buddy Holly-esque, for lack of a better word. In 1963, February 11th, they record their first album, Please Please Me, and they do it all in one day in November 1963, same year, uh, with The Beatles, becomes the first million-selling album in Britain. And then they begin their crazy evolution, their domination of the world, as well as their internal change as a band. In February of 1964, they tour the U.S. for the first time. People lose their minds. They're out of their gourds. The barn door is wide open. Whatever idiom you want to use, they're nuts. This is where you see a lot of that archival footage of people just screaming and screeching as the guys get off the plane. Yeah, I mean, in particular, young ladies, they were yeah. quite fond of, of these uh, these lads from these Liverpoolian lads. Did you know that's the word for it? Liverpoolian. Yeah. There's a weird, inexplicable D. In there. <laughs> um, yeah, there's one story about how a woman came up behind Ringo and like snipped a lock of his hair. So this was uh, during their first trip to the United States, I believe. They did the Ed Sullivan show and then broke TV record numbers. blew up. And I know a lot of us listening today will say, well, yeah, of course somebody's going to sneak up behind you and snip a lock your hair. That happens, you know, that happens on a semi-regular basis, but this was a different time. 
So things begin to move. Wait, are you kidding? What? Are you kidding about the lock of your hair snippery? No, that doesn't happen to you? No. I don't think I've reached those heights yet. We hang out maybe just at different circles. I guess so. We hang out together a lot, though. Ben, are people doing this to you? That's, are you okay? Are you, dude? Do you want me to point it out when someone does it to you? Please. Okay, you have my word. That so you think they're just being really stealthy about it? I'm just not noticing. I feel like I've seen it happen, but you acted like it was normal. I was none the wiser, my friend. Well, that is, you know what? As a team, we can all we can all do better. Also, typically, it is Matt who is sneaking up behind you. Just want to put that out there. Oh, I've caught him doing that before just in the hall. But listen, I wanted to point one thing out before sure. we move on. In 65, the Beatles play Shea Stadium, and it's just like bonker nanzas. And it's like that was literally the, the, the creation of the arena rock mm. genre. Even though it's funny because the Beatles, you don't picture that as being a uh, – mega rock show because they're even even like their early stuff that's a little mm. more traditionally rock and roll again it was a very different time yeah you know thing i one of the things that really pushed them to that arena status is the year earlier on july 6th of 1964 they had debuted the film a hard day's night and they had released a soundtrack with that on august 10th that reached number one. It also, that soundtrack included additional songs. So they were doing something very intelligent. They were releasing albums concurrently or roughly concurrently with films. So if you are a super fan, you can embrace multiple avenues of uh, fandom this way. They meet the queen. They play the arena, as you said, Noel. They release another film, Help, and the group internally and content-wise, begins to change. On December 3rd of 1965, they released Rubber Soul. This is often cited as a turning point for the band. They begin to depart from those very straightforward rock and roll roots we mentioned earlier. They release Revolver in 66. They release Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in 67. It becomes the highest-selling British album of all time, and I think it still holds up. I really like that album. Which one? Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club. Band. Oh yeah, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's what they call a stone cold classic, my friend. Yeah, I agree. Uh, they released Magical Mystery Tour in 1967. November, That's actually my favorite. November 27th. Oh, the super psyche stuff. By that is yeah. my favorite. More so than the the just the Beatles album in '68. You know, the, the White, White album. album, yeah. That to me, that's a different Beatles, though. Like, I, I really like like uh, the the Magical Mystery Tour mm-hmm. and Sgt. Pepper are like the most kind of candy dripping psychedelic records sure. that they have in their catalog. Then the White Album has some weird stuff on it, but it's much more of a songwritery, straightforward kind of. And they also say that was when they, their breakup was eminent because right. a lot of people refer to that album as a series of solo songs, Lennon which is true. referred to it as a – he says it's not a Beatles record. Mm-hmm. He said it's a series of solo songs. And we all – this is something where the fans perhaps won out over the creators because the creators just released this white album cover and they called it the Beatles, an eponymous record. But everyone else has called it the white album and that's what it goes down in history as – uh, they've also been releasing films, but yes, their internal organization is beginning to stagnate and decay. In January of 1969, a documentary is filmed. It's called Let It Be, and it's intended as an account of the Beatles' rebirth, but instead it ends up chronicling their demise, and they are headed for an inevitable breakup. Speaking of breakups, let's take a break for a word from our sponsors. 
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. So as they're attaining this massive fame, the band members are growing increasingly distant. In 1969, John Lennon privately tells the rest of the band that he plans to leave, depart, skedaddle. They ask him to keep it under wraps, so they keep this statement private. In April of 1970, Ringo Starr is the only one to show up for a final studio session for a Beatles record. There's no real formal announcement. They had intended to let it peter out. But on April 10th, Paul publicly announces his own departure and news spreads that the Beatles are no more. Their 13th and final album, Let It Be, is released on May 8th. In the aftermath, without delving into all the legal issues they had and all the personal acrimony that occurred, we should just say that the the band's breakup did not end well. It was not amicable. And for a time, several members, particularly Paul McCartney, felt really constrained and tied down by the various agreements they had made in the as the Beatles. In December of 1980, John Lennon fatally shot. November of 2001, George Harrison succumbs to lung cancer. As we record this, Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney are still alive, still with us, the last living members of the world's best-selling band. And oddly enough, many of their fans suspect these two men may hold secrets their bandmates took to the grave. So here's where it gets crazy. 
Yeah, I mean, it's hard to be a band that rises to such meteoric fame so quickly and sustains that fame, not only sustains it as a popular phenomenon, but actually as a critical darling, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, just considered to be incredible artists and songwriters and influencers of the zeitgeist and like recording techniques and everything you could possibly imagine pop culture wise, these guys had their hands in, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, it's very difficult to be that influential and not have people coming up with uh, some interesting theories about stuff that that went on, especially considering that they were a little clandestine about certain aspects of their lives and their careers. Um, Early on, they had this image of like this squeaky clean Mm -hmm. kind of boy band almost, like almost like a manufactured thing with the screaming girls at Chase Stadium and whatnot. But then over time, they they evolved into much more guru-like, you know, kings of psychedelia. And then um, even beyond then became much more involved in activism and used their platform, especially Lenin, to influence world events, Mm -hmm. which we'll get into. So when when you have those uh, kind of conditions colliding – it's 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 uh, it brews up some pretty interesting conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. um, and we're going to talk about some of the most popular ones, or the most maybe some of them you may have heard of, and some of them are a little under the radar. I have not heard of, but uh, they're the most they're the ones that interested us the most. Yeah, yeah, we have to uh, in honor of our compatriot Matt. We want to start with one of your favorite ones, Matt. We know he's listening. Hey, Matt. Uh, It's that Paul McCartney is dead. This is, as you said, Noel, one of the most well-known, perhaps strangest, Beatles conspiracy theories. The idea is the following. The real Paul McCartney, the one that you see in various interviews or appearances or the occasional cameo, isn't Paul McCartney at all. That man is an imposter. The genuine Paul McCartney, the little uh, – what's the word, No, Liverpudlian? Liverpudlian. Liverpudlian. The little Liverpudlian. The <laughs> little Liverpudlian. Actually died in the early hours of November 9th, 1966 after his car skidded off an icy road and crashed into a pole. According to the story – When John Lennon and George and Ringo found out about this death, they thought that they would not be able to come back from it because we just walked through their earlier timeline. This is 66. A lot of great things are happening. They're reaching heights, but they think they have further to go. So according to this legend, they covered up his death by replacing him with a lookalike, a guy named Billy Shears, who already looked, acted, and even sounded like the actual Paul McCartney. You mean Billy Shears from a little help from my friends on, uh, you know, when they go, Billy Shears. <laughs> and that's the, that's the guy. That's Ringo's character in a uh, little help from my friends. What would you think if I sang out of, you know, yeah, that's Billy Shears. So yeah. that's, is that, that's, that's that a clue? Maybe it is, and I'm glad you mentioned clues here because they. the question is, are you hearing Billy Shears or Billy's here? You know, this, this is one of the – one of the primary pieces of proof for people who believe this theory. There are these ideas that various audio artifacts have been hidden inside Beatles recordings that give you clues to the story, right? And that's that's one of them, but there's another one that might be even more 
uh, more familiar to our fellow conspiracy realists? Well, there's there's a lot of them, and, and and a lot of them, a lot of this one revolves around hidden images. A lot of a lot of most of these do revolve around things hidden in plain sight or plain audio. Right? Hearing, yeah, because you know? I had said audio artifacts earlier, but it's important to notice a lot of the album artwork itself is pointed to as proof of this. Yeah, right? album art and even um, press photos and, and things mm-hmm. like that. But yeah, um, so one of the lyrics on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, of the, one of the most gorgeous and probably most popular songs on that record, A Day in the Life, has the lyric, uh, he blew his mind out in a car. He didn't notice that the lights had changed. Um, and also uh, that, you know, people point to that as being a reference to Paul, his death. And then in Strawberry Fields Forever, there is a uh, what's known as a backwards mask, which we've talked about quite a bit on this show. In that most recent episode we did about satanic panics in Italy, um, I think we talked about a Led Zeppelin back mask. But in the song Strawberry Fields, there's a part where when you flip it backwards, it sounds like John Lennon saying, I buried Paul. Um, he actually would would correct the the, the record on this and say uh, I was saying cranberry sauce. <laughs> um, I'll let you be the judge. Yeah, let's let's play this. We don't we can't play too many Beatles clips uh, without getting into a crazy lawsuit, but we can get away with this one. Surely we can. Sure, right. sounds like that to me. I don't hear cranberry sauce. What do you hear, Ben? Well, the thing is, it doesn't mm, – it's very much an audio Rorschach. Do you know what I mean by that? And yeah. Like it's a like Rorschach uh, painting but for your ears. Or what do they call it? Bader-Meinhof where like you mm. uh, expect to see something and then you'll see it everywhere or you think about mm. a thing and then you start to see it everywhere. They're confirmation bias there you go. directly. Yeah. But you can see how if someone already believes this, they would they would see more of these things as proof. And there, there are several other – uh, details in there, including, for example, on the White Album, there's the claim that uh, if you play the track Revolution 9 backwards, you'll hear the message, turn me on, dead man. Turn me on, dead man. Turn me on, dead man. And in 1969, on October 12th, a student at Michigan University, a kid named Tom Zarsky, called a Detroit radio host named Russ Gibb, and he wanted to talk to Russ about the stories regarding Paul being dead. Gibb was dismissive of the rumors, but Zarsky talked him into playing Revolution 9 backwards on air at WKNR-FM. And everyone who tuned in thought they heard, turn me on dead man, turn me on dead man. And the phones rang off the hooks and this brought the conspiracy to national levels. Isn't this the kid that um, had a bunch of other theories about how like, what was this guy's story? I feel like there was a part where in the research where he mentioned not having the resources to play every Beatles record backwards to find more hidden messages. <laughs> You'll also hear people say that it was just a, a hoax that Zarsky knowingly participated in. And Ben, I misspoke. There's actually a different kid that did, in the 90s mm-hmm. who um, <laughs> who had some pretty interesting theories about backwards masking in uh, Beatles songs relating to another conspiracy that we'll get into shortly. Ah, OK. I see. And then <laughs> – so this also goes into the idea that you mentioned, Nola. I'll amend. I do think 
I do think the nickname for super producer Paul is is probably the best one we can have for today's episode because in the Glass Onion song, John says, well, here's another clue for you all. The walrus was Paul. And the people who believe this started thinking, okay, get this. You, you have to walk with us here. Uh, so people who believe this one started spreading rumors that walrus was actually a Scandinavian word that meant death. That is factually inaccurate is the nicest way for me to say it. The word is actually derived from the Old Norse romshalver, which means walrus, not death. So while there are all these clues or purported clues about Paul McCartney's secret death, the the biggest question would be how could – someone get away with this? How could they keep a secret? If there is a lookalike, how could he live his entire life as someone else without slipping up once? Yeah, and make all those sick Wings records too, you know? I mean, come on. I mean, they're they're records. What are you talking about? Have you heard <laughs> Ram? That's not considered Wings, but that record is fantastic. That is a really, really great record. I, I don't really care much about the Wings stuff after that, but Ram is a classic, my friend. So, this guy, who is rumored to have replaced Paul McCartney, where did he come from? Billy Shears, we called him. His full name is William Shears Campbell. He was the winner of the 1965 Paul McCartney lookalike competition. That's right. He apparently was an orphan um, who hailed from Edinburgh. And it just so happened, to my previous point, uh, re uh, Ram. He was also a pretty good mimic in terms of uh, the type of songs that he could actually write himself mm-hmm. and the way he sang and his mannerisms. Um, so, yeah, this is interesting detail here. Yeah, but the the issue with it is that for people who believe there is a body double, uh, they believe there are minuscule discrepancies differences between the actual Paul's face and the impersonator or imposter's face. And you can find plenty of plenty of blogs and forums wherein they describe what they see as the multiple provable differences between the real Paul McCartney and the man they call Fall. F-A-U-L, fake Paul. That's great. Um, and there's another interesting detail here, too. Um, it was right around this time, November of 1966, when supposedly this imposter uh, stepped in. That's when the Beatles stopped touring. They were never really much of a touring band. They True. played these handful of big, giant stadium shows around the world, but not in the sense that we know today in terms of bands that just grinded out on the road for months at a time. Um, they, they were not that kind of band, and they just stopped entirely to focus on their recorded output. And, you know, some conspiracy-minded types might point to the idea that it's a lot easier to uh, hide these kinds of things sure. if you're not constantly out in the public eye and you can control your image and the output of, of, of photographs and liner notes and what have you, right? That's a valid point for sure. And this this theory, of course, is also one of the oldest ones about the Beatles. You can trace it back to 1969 when a guy named Tim Harper, who was the editor of a student newspaper at Drake University, published an article called, Is Beatle Paul McCartney Dead?, and then, you know, later in that year, it gets the uh, the national coverage because it's on the radio. It takes off like gangbusters and people still 
believe it to some degree today. As you might imagine, as you might imagine, the Paul McCartney or fake Paul McCartney, whichever you choose, folks, was asked about this before. And he said that uh, he, I bet he said something jovial and delightful, didn't he? He was pretty. He was uh, he was surprisingly diplomatic. He said, "Well, you know, I haven't been in the public eye. I took some time off, so maybe that's why people thought I was dead." Mm-hmm. And then you know, there's that question of like, when you're at that level of fame and prominence, do people treat it like you're dead when you decide not to be on the front of magazines and then these covers? If anything, you know, hopefully he looks at it as a flattering thing. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to take it. What would you do if you were accused of being your own body double? Yeah, that'd be tough, man. I have been accused of this, though, actually. Someone on one of the forums uh, mentioned that on this show, I sound really serious. And on our other show, Ridiculous History, I sound much more upbeat. And uh, is it possible that I have some sort of clone or, or, or double action going on? Saw that. I imagined you'd be pretty delighted by it. I thought your answer was diplomatic. It was, you know, I try. Um, I, I can't claim to be as, as uh, diplomatic as Sir Paul McCartney. Um, but speaking of, let's talk about a couple of more uh, image-related uh, clues to this particular one. On the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which is just chock full of references and things and different characters from history, like I believe Karl Marx is on there. Mm-hmm. Um, also, all, all four Beatles are um, shown wearing band uniforms and gathered around this giant bass drum. And Paul has his right hand over his head. And this has uh, been interpreted to represent an Eastern symbol um, that means death. And he also uh, has a black clarinet while the other guys in the band have golden brass type instruments. Right? And there's something with uh, his dominant hand as it's pictured in the art, right? In terms of which one he's using to hold the, uh, the clarinet? Right. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Okay. So there's um, uh, there's actually a website called TurnMeOnDeadMan.com mm-hmm. and has a whole page devoted to uh, some of these Paul is Dead theories. And one of them involves taking a, a mirror and holding it up to the center of that uh, Sgt. Pepper bass drum, at which point it says, I, Onyx, he die, um, which would be I, one, nine, he die, which also has an embedded reference to 11, nine, November 9th, 1966, which is when supposedly uh, Mm. he had this fatal car crash. So is this a – is this surreptitious communication? And if so, why and how if they want to keep it a secret? That's the big question. This – oh, going back to what Paul McCartney said himself or his double said, uh, he seems to have been kind of a a sport about it. In 1993, he gave a nod to this conspiracy theory in his album. Do you know the name of it? It was Paul is Live, right? Yes, it is Paul is Live. Uh, And despite that, the – Theory continues today as recently as just uh, 2009 even in Wired magazine, the Italian version of the publication, there was a study done by two forensic scientists who used computer technology to compare the measurements of McCartney's skull before and after the car accident. 
they took on the project because they wanted to prove that the Paul is dead thing had no basis. But what they claimed to discover is that the point where the nose detaches from the face is different in both skulls and the position of the ears is different in a way that cannot be explained by surgery and the shape of the palate is also different. So their story is that they went in to disprove it and they came out going, oh, but in Italian. And I think at this point we can even move on to a slightly related one um, that uh, is a very strange one that implies that every single beetle was in fact a double. A double or fictional? Well, but there's two. There's there's yeah. one that says they were they were a series of of humans that were actors that were hired to play them so that they could like maximize their uh, you know grind time with all the different you know responsibilities they would have being mm. a, a giant band like that. Um, so that's one, and I don't know. We don't have to even go into that one too deep, but that is one that's floating out there. The idea of a boy band sort of manufactured like the Monkees and things like that. Sure. The Beatles would have been totally. the ones that kind of set that trend off. But this is the idea that they were, in fact, all played by different actors. Is this the one that says the Beatles were created by the Illuminati? Well, I, I, it's a different one, but it's yeah. related. So well, here, I think, why, do, why do you I, walk us through this? This one? is it. That's all I've got for that one. Oh. It's just, I mean, it's really, there's really not much to it. Yeah, here we go. So there's a guy named Chris Fischel. This is coming from a great uh, Huffington Post article um, who was looking into the idea uh, that McCartney had died and in his research decided that, in fact, every other Beatle had died except possibly Paul um, and that there were tons of clues hidden in, in all of these record covers dating as far back as 1963 um, where Ringo's face on their 63 record um, is not in line with the rest of them. Mm. Um, and then in 64, you've got A Hard Day's Night where George has his back to the camera um, and is holding a cigarette. This is, this is all just super stretchy to me. And then on Revolver, we've got uh, supposedly – the second John Lennon uh, singing the line, I'm only sleeping, Ooh. sleep being a metaphor for death. And then we've got the buried Paul thing in 67. Um, and, you know, the, this guy goes into about two dozen or so pieces of evidence and decides that this is the one I was talking about earlier where he says he just didn't have the resources necessary to listen to every single song backwards. Ooh. I guess he didn't have a computer yet. Um, right. But that's it. Yeah. That, that, that's, and, and then the, it goes on because there's another one saying that the Beatles had been played by different actors, every single one of them. And there's a list, just like you said, with Paul for every Beatle showing that there are different facial uh, dissimilarities through various periods in their career. It's, it's interesting because that is not as implausible in principle a theory as we might initially think it's not – I don't think it's particularly uh, a secret, but it's probably an open secret. We can go ahead and say this. Something similar has occurred in, in the past in entertainment culture. And I have one example of something that's going on now. Have you heard the story about Morgan Freeman and voiceover? I think we talked about this off air. Morgan Freeman – has an iconic voice. Of course. And will lend it to anything. You hear him. Yeah. Often even when he's in any film, yeah. he's just the narrator because he's that well-known for this. So you got an Amex card commercial? 
Morgan right. Freeman will do it. Right. You got to break up with your girlfriend, get Morgan Freeman on the phone, soften the blow. She'll walk away giving that voicemail message 10 stars. Also, don't break up with your significant other over the phone. You know what I mean? It's not nice. Be be an adult. But uh, <laughs> But the strange thing about Morgan Freeman and that a lot of people don't know is that he has been getting so much voice acting work. And he is so well-known and so popular in the industry that his prices go up. And if he doesn't have the time or the inclination or if you don't have the money to afford him, he will recommend his secret voice double. What? There's a guy who just does Morgan Freeman-esque voices. So if Amex can't afford him, he doesn't want to do it, but he still wants a piece of the action, he'll say, you know, well, you can't get me, but you can get this guy. Who sounds like me. And do you think that guy has to pay him like a finder's fee or some sort of give him a cut? I bet he does. Surely he does. I'm sure he gets a cut. I don't Surely know the nature of that relationship. He's had to license that voice. And but, so that's, that's a very weird arrangement, Ben. And what an interesting, what an interesting thing. So, and then dictators often use body doubles. Saddam. Right. Saddam, Stalin, uh, Gaddafi. The list goes on. But Saddam in particular, I believe there was some – a forensic expert that went through dozens and dozens of photographs of Saddam mm. Hussein and determined that there were at least, I want to say, six in play? Well, there were several, yeah. Um, I think a couple of them died too. But we say all that to say it is not entirely out of the realm of possibility that someone could have a body double in the entertainment industry. What differentiates this theory is the idea that it would be so prolific and so successful. I mean, I wonder, frankly, I wonder if it happens with K-pop, which is another huge industry. But not every Beatle, as we know, ended up being one of the Fab Four. Pete Best got kicked out. There's also this conspiracy theory that says the Beatles tried themselves to kill Pete Best. And the, these are just these are just some of the beginnings. We ha- we have some more to explore, but maybe let's give that some room to breathe. We'll be back after a word from our sponsor. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. 
Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Here's one of the darker ones. The John Lennon cover-up. We mentioned earlier that he was shot on December 8th, 1980 in Manhattan by a fellow named Mark David Chapman. And it's weird because he was simultaneously a crazed fan. He's been described that way many times, but he also had some real problems with Lenin, specifically with his atheism, mm-hmm. uh, because Chapman himself was a Christian and he uh, did not appreciate uh, John Lennon kind of spreading this notion that, you know, that Christianity, you know, it would never go so far as to say that it's stupid, but he just did not think it was important that you the notion that you do not need a god or the threat of divine punishment to be a decent person atheism essentially absolutely somewhere between spiritualism and atheism yeah so he he shot lenin four times in the back i think he fired the gun five times and then he just sat down on a curb and started reading the catcher in the rye which he had brought with him when he was arrested, he asked for a statement. He told police that the book, The Catcher in the Rye, was his statement. This has got to be a real terrible occurrence for J.D. Salinger. Well, this is a recurring thing, mm-hmm. um, this idea that Catcher in the Rye is somehow some sort of assassination trigger yeah. because uh, the gentleman who made an attempt on Ronald Reagan's life mm-hmm. um, I believe was carrying a copy of it as well uh, and it, it's been – talked about as an interesting, you know, if, if anyone hasn't read it, it's, it's told from the perspective of a young dude um, who is very kind of antisocial and telling the story from um, the confines of a psychiatric institution. And it sort of normalizes uh, that kind of outsider mentality, you know, sure. the kind of lone wolf. No one, he doesn't kill anybody in the book, spoiler alert, but he talks about things along those lines and there's a there's a huge um a a huge thematic thread going through this story in which holden caulfield the protagonist or at least the main character uh wrestles with the concept of what is real and what is fake who is phony who is sincere and yes it has been alleged in various conspiracy theories that Catcher in the Rye was used as a psychological trigger by intelligence agencies. So in this theory, John Lennon was not killed so much by Chapman himself. He was more killed by uh, remote control. The idea is that Chapman was programmed by U.S. government agents to kill Lennon and they used the, the novel as a signal to go ahead with the operation. So either it was a, a subtle signal to Chapman that other people wouldn't understand or it was a trigger that he was programmed, uh, brainwashed essentially into uh, into following. You know, like he sees this uh, or hears a um, passage read aloud mm-hmm. and it triggers a certain set of actions. This sounds just – this sounds like if it were a breakfast dish, it would be nuts and bananas 
But it is true that John Lennon, like other celebrities and musicians and political activists, John Lennon was being monitored by U.S. intelligence agencies to some degree. All this theory does is go further. We should also mention that Mark David Chapman at the time of this recording is alive and well. He uh, just had a parole hearing earlier this year. He was denied parole. Uh, because the parole board wrote back to him and said, you admittedly carefully planned and executed the murder of a world-famous person for no reason other than to gain notoriety. While no person's life is any more valuable than another's life, the fact that you chose someone who is not only a world-renowned person and beloved by millions, regardless of pain and suffering you would cause to his family, friends, and many others, you demonstrated a callous disregard for the sanctity of human life and the pain and suffering of others. Not the most well-written sentence, but you get what they're saying. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a bit of a run-on, wasn't it? It was. It was. They were trying to squeeze in a lot of stuff there. But does it maybe sound like, too, that they're really pushing the onus of this act really hard on him, saying for no reason, you right. know, considering that this uh, MK Ultra esque type conditioning mm-hmm. was perhaps in play? Um, uh, and, yeah. and, you know, and, and knowing what we know, maybe, Ben, talk a little bit more mm-hmm. about – why Lenin was being monitored, Lenin himself was being monitored by the government in the same way that they would keep tabs on someone like Martin Luther King Jr. Sure, yeah. So the concern here, we have to look back. It's 1980. The Cold War is in full swing. Domino theory of ideology is also – it's not something that got left behind in Vietnam, you know. The idea here is that leftist activists who have a public platform could sway the U.S. voter or the world stage. That it was a, a big concern of the powers that be at the time. But the question then becomes one of technology involved. Like, has the U.S. ever successfully managed to make an individual do something they would not normally do unconsciously? You know what I mean? Like Sirhan Sirhan claims that he was a Manchurian candidate as well. Mm. Uh, but then the the second question goes to um, motivation. Had had John Lennon done something specific that would have been the the straw on the proverbial camel's back? Had he done something that made someone in a shadowy room in D.C. or in Langley go, he's gone too far? send the book. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't know, like when you ask this question about like, have we really seen evidence that that this is even possible? And this might sound utterly ridiculous, but I'm going to put it out there. I have seen, you know, and you you may have too, successful hypnosis, you know? Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of times it's like people, certain people are more susceptible to it. But, you know, I went to like a Renaissance fair here Mm -hmm. in Atlanta. And I, I don't know, I'm pretty skeptical about this stuff, but I saw some people who I saw walking around earlier at the festival and who were called up or volunteered mm-hmm. to go up on stage and were hypnotized super quickly and made to do things that they wouldn't normally do, like cluck like a chicken or mm-hmm. you know walk around. Who's to say you couldn't take that to the next level and trigger somebody with a word to make them you know really do something they wouldn't do, like like kill a man? It's an interesting I question. I don't know. Well, it it goes into. Not just um, severity of action or extremity of action, but also uh, severity of time or distance from suggestion to action. It's something I would – I've often called this the chloroform question. 
So you know how chloroform, we all know this, chloroform in fiction is depicted as something that you, it's put on, doused on a rag and then you, you put it over someone's face, right? Their mouth and their nose and they pass out for some amount of time. Real chloroform application or the real usage of it is much different. You have to hold it there longer and it keeps people under only as long really as it's on them. They'll wake up shortly thereafter. And real hypnosis, uh, we know it can it can have these short-term effects. People will cluck like a chicken. They will do acts that they might not normally do, but we don't know if it can force them to do things that we would consider depraved, like murder or you know cannibalism. Maybe you could get somebody to light a fire if they were dis- if they disassociated it from human harm. But the big question is. Can we make some sort of suggestion that will stay for months or years? That's the big question. Like, That's right. Can the Renaissance Fair hypnotist make someone cluck like a chicken in 2020? And then recall it with, yes. No, I understand. Yeah. I understand. But it's still, it's interesting to see that happen in real time. The potential's there. The potential seems to be there. But, you know, like we say, the human mind is is even less understood than, you know, what we understand about space. So. He did uh, – Chapman did apologize for being such an idiot and choosing the wrong way for glory to Yoko Ono after he shot her husband and then – Choosing the wrong what? Choosing the wrong way for glory. So he, so he almost admitted that he did it for like uh, notoriety in some way. Right. He is eligible for parole in 2020. Uh, unlike Sirhan Sirhan, he has not made ardent, consistent claims that he was brainwashed by any intelligence agency. But that, that's where we leave it. And it, it's the, the thing that makes this one so tantalizing is that we know, we know years and decades later that the intelligence agencies of the U.S. at the very least did actively monitor uh, people they considered to be dangerous political activists and they also actively harassed them like you said earlier with Dr. King. They, they really did that. Right? COINTELPRO was a real thing. The question is just how far it went. And if you want to read more about this, check out John Potash's book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, which says that these agencies did not just target John Lennon, but they also targeted Tupac Shakur and Kurt Cobain and, and many other celebrities. But here's here's a question I have. What if there's something bigger? than intelligence agencies at work? What if it's bigger than the CIA? What if it's bigger than the FBI? What if it's the Illuminati? The Illuminati? The very same. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) And within that, we have some subsets, don't we? Sure. This idea of the Illuminati. We have two in particular that we're talking about. One that's a a research wing uh, of the U.K., that supposedly receives uh, government funding from the United States and that was very particularly tied to MK Ultra, we talked about a little while ago, which is something called the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations. <laughs> yes, the Tavistock Institute. In addition to the Committee of 300, mm-hmm. um, first off, let's talk a little bit about the Tavistock Institute. They are essentially a nonprofit, at least on the surface, mm-hmm. um, that a British-based nonprofit that has 
done – kind of a think tank, I guess you could call it, that has done sure. research on how to solve societal problems. Quote, helping organizations, groups, and individuals to learn, change, innovate, and develop. How much more vague could you be? They were started in uh, back in 47, right? That's right. And they have, all have uh, since their inception, been intimately tied to the field of psychiatry. Um, and again, they were connected to the MKUltra experiment, as we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. which if we didn't go too deep into it, surely you guys know what this is. We've done episodes on it in the past, but it is that Manchurian candidate kind of uh, research that was ruled to be not cool. You know, by the U.S. government, the idea of turning people into secret sleeper soldiers, among other things. Yeah. So they are commonly associated with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. You can find a couple of books focusing on this, uh, one by Daniel Easterlin called Tavistock Institute, Social Engineering and the Masses. That's the more recent one. It came out in 2015. But the the concept here is that there's a totalitarian agenda which ultimately will result in the Illuminati taking over America with the intent of utterly destroying it through rock music and drugs to rebel against the status quo, undermine the family unit, dogs and cats sleeping together, people barefoot in the streets and – Wearing shoes in their houses. Well, it reminds me of that episode we did a while back about did the CIA manufacture the counterculture. Right. Uh, A very similar end, you know, in theory would be to cause the breakdown of civilized society in some way or to demonize a particular group, which is I think more of what the CIA theory was about. But this one is much more watch the world burn type stuff, isn't it, Ben? Yeah, it is, Noam. There's – the idea is that the Beatles were created – purposefully with intent uh, by the Illuminati or these various subsidiaries to introduce counterculture, to introduce drugs. And this is part of something larger called the Aquarian Conspiracy by its opponents. It was started by a guy named John Coleman as recently as the 1990s. He used to work for MI6 and that gave him some street cred with people. He said that the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations was instrumental in creating this band and they do some of the some of his claims rest on the similar idea of subtle visual or audible clues like he says there's a promo picture from the yellow submarine that shows John Lennon flashing the devil's horn sign associated with this mysterious group and that Paul is making the 666 or Eye of Horus hand sign. Or as I like to refer to it, the AOK emoji <laughs> hand. Is that what it is? Yeah, kind so. of. I mean, it's just like putting your finger and your thumb together in a mm. circle and holding out your other three fingers. But, you know, if you if you draw a line through that, that O that you're making and then the remaining three fingers, you get three sixes. But it's also – it's literally oh. – you know, that's what the 666, oh, six, six. Yeah. but it's also literally, you know, an emoji for, and it just means cool. Everything yeah. is A-OK, you know? Well, in some places it means butthole. That's fair. That's, that's, I think that's unfair to tourists who don't know that when well, they're traveling. There was another conspiracy theory or, uh, you know, kind of an alarmist thing that was making the rounds. Oh, about, about white power? Well, it wasn't white power. I think it was like the teenagers were using that symbol in pictures and it showed that they were what the kids call DTF. <laughs> That's down ridiculous. to freak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's also a, one of the one of the pieces of evidence for the Illuminati idea is 
that the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band also includes a host of, quote, Illuminati stooges, such as Aldous Huxley, Karl Marx, H.G. Wells, and playwright George Bernard Shaw. That's right. Shaw was in it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a known, known Illuminati stooge. I just love it when people are called stooges or tycoons. Uh, we do have something else, um, one, one more to add on the pile here, and that's the idea that the Beatles did not release all their songs. Did you ever hear this? Yeah, this one's pretty pretty debunkable, but it's one of those ones that I think rabid fans were so jazzed about the idea of, yeah. they just wanted to let it ride. But what's the what's the backstory? Yeah, then? it goes back to 1971. There's a British teenager named Martin Lewis, and he sends a bootleg Beatles recording to a magazine, and he includes extra track names on the bootleg. Songs like Colliding Circles, Left is Right and Right is Wrong, Deck Chair, and Pink Litmus Paper Shirts, and claim they have been hidden away in the Apple Records vault. The thing is, of course, people thought this was amazing. They wanted to hear these new songs. But the thing is that later, Lewis confesses and says the whole thing is a hoax. And like you said, Noel, People don't believe him. He even explained it in an interview with USA Today when he said, To my shock and horror, many Beatles fans refused to believe me. People told me, your confession is a hoax. I know someone who's got those songs. And so he says, I'm letting the cat out of the bag again. There are no hidden songs. Which is where we begin to wrap up the show today, folks, because for some of these theories that we've described, some more plausible than others, there are always going to be people who say, if you are attempting to disprove what I believe, then that means you are part of the vast Beatles conspiracy. But what do you think? Uh, Noel, what do you think? Do you think any of these could have some sand or a grain of truth? Do you think Paul McCartney died in the 60s? I don't know, man. I hope not. He seems he seems like the same old Paul, you know. And also, it's on balance. We have to we have to think of the ratio. To be fair, if there's a body double, he spent more time now being Paul McCartney than Paul McCartney did when he was alive. Well, so you know, in terms of just time spent as Paul, who is more genuine? I know that makes me sound like a horrible person. Not at all. Not at all. Um, But we also want to hear from you folks, uh, fellow conspiracy realist skeptics alike. Do you think that any of these claims have an amount of – an amount of sand? One thing we did not talk about, which is a provable and proven conspiracy, be corruption in the music industry and the ways in which artists back then and today uh, were chosen sometimes to be successful through practices like payola, through practices like – you know, uh, suppressing one record label's output to play uh, the records of another label. Hopefully, that's something that we can we can explore in a future episode. But in the meantime, let us know what you think. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook on our various community pages. The one for this one is "Here's Where It Gets Crazy." Longtime listeners, you probably uh, you hopefully heard. Noel and Matt do an episode recently that was entirely composed of fascinating stuff from our community page, right, Noel? 
Yeah, that was a fun one. Those are always fun to do. And Ben, there was a very disconcerting Ben-shaped abyss in the room with us at that time. But you yourself were not corporeally present. But we did uh, commune with the abyss a couple of times. That's very kind. I, I am often described as a Ben-shaped abyss. Uh, so you can, And that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is 1-833-STDWYTK. If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.